everyone. We've got some clips with some swear words in today's show. You have been warned. Over the last week, as pundits have tried to make sense of election results from across the country, framing it as this democratic shellacking, I've been thinking a lot about this video from last year. This was shot in June of 2020 in Minneapolis, just a few days after George Floyd's murder. It shows a throng of protesters who'd tracked down the city's mayor, Jacob Fry. And one of those protesters is asking the mayor a few questions. Jacob Fry, we have a yes or no question for you. Yes or no, will you commit to defunding Minneapolis Police Department? The woman with the microphone here towers over Fry, reveling in the flipped power dynamic. We don't want no more police. It's that clear. We don't want people with guns toting around in our community, shooting us down. You have an answer? It is a yes or a no. It is a yes or a no. Will you defund the Minneapolis Police Department? The mayor does not want to answer this question. He looks a lot younger than his 38 years. And then, the protester with the microphone, she ups the stakes. If y'all don't know, he's up for re-election next year. And if he says no, guess what the fuck we gonna do next year? The mayor mumbles a bit. It's hard to hear him with the I can't breathe mask covering his mouth. But he's saying no. I will not be defunding the police. Yeah, I mean, so the protesters went to his residence, and I think watching that, we all had the same thought that this looks like a mayor who lost the public's trust. John Collins reports on police and public safety for Minnesota Public Radio. He's been thinking about this tape, too, how at the time, it seemed like a kind of turning point. You know, as he was walking away, they chanted, shame. The mayor's constituents give him the middle finger as he weaves through the crowd to leave. He looks a little like Charlie Brown, with his head down, walking slowly away. And it seemed like at least I thought in my, in my head, this is the end of Jacob Fry. But after these recordings stopped, something strange happened. Jacob Fry spent the last year and a half digging in. The words defund the police seemed to become politically toxic. And the surging energy of that Minneapolis day dissipated. Since then, when I've spoken to Jacob Fry, that moment where he was shamed by, you know, however many hundred people were out there, became almost a symbol to him of how he sticks to his principles, even when he gets heat, especially from the left. And that's a theme that he brought up over and over in his campaign, where he was framing himself as the reasonable candidate, the candidate of stability. It strikes me that both of us thought, looking at this video, things are kind of over for this mayor. But last week, 
that election that this protester was referring to happened. The mayor was on the ballot, and so was the idea of defunding the police. What happened? Yeah, so Mayor Jacob Fry won re-election and the ballot question around public safety, which would have um, replaced the Minneapolis Police Department with a new Department of Public Safety in the city's charter, failed. This failed ballot question got 44% of the vote. 56% of voters said no to dissolving the city's police department and putting something new in its place. Today on the show... What does Minneapolis's election say about the limits of police reform? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. There were all kinds of things on Minneapolis's ballot last week. The mayor was up for re-election, so were all 13 city council members. But John Collins says all anyone wanted to talk about was question two. Question two was that ballot measure about the police. It was not technically about defunding the department. Instead, it aimed to dissolve the current police force and replace it with the Department of Public Safety. That would include some combination of social workers, mental health practitioners, and, yes, uniformed, armed police. But it was hard to shake the association with the defund movement, especially since last summer, nine of the 13 people on the city council did pledge to defund the police. John says because of that, question two kind of took over Minneapolis political conversations for the past few months. There are signs up and down the streets right now saying yes to question two or no to question two. Everyone's mailbox, including mine, was stuffed with, you know, mailers about like question two from either the campaigns or from outside groups. You know, there were some outside groups. I got one last week that I think it was from some sort of national pack that represents law enforcement calling the city Murderapolis, you know, like talking hmm. about the crime rates here. Um, it's a reference to the mid 90s when Minneapolis had very relatively high homicide rates and had on it like a really striking image of a stuffed animal and then blood running from the stuffed animal, essentially saying, you know, children are, are being shot, which there have Oof. been like some children who've been shot. But that's the like level of the campaign that people were experiencing. Do you feel like the people opposed to question two were being a little disingenuous in how they talked about it? making it about defund the police and when it when it maybe shouldn't have been the the proposal was was never talked about defunding the police it basically talked about rebranding the police yeah i mean my experience so re reporters don't like talk about this and and you all know this i think but we get a lot of pressure from advocates um, who want to quibble about a characterization or, or something. And in this case, all of Minneapolis, the group that opposed the ballot question, 
they wanted me to, and they went to my bosses, not to me, to uh, adjust a, a story, the language in a story that they were making the claim that the police department would be disbanded after 30 days, essentially. And hmm. nothing in my reporting confirmed that. And when I talked to attorneys, they said that's not the case. And it was just like a talking point that they wanted to push. And I felt they were like misleading in this. And I, I wasn't going to repeat their claims for them. But they pushed back really hard on it. And I think that's an example of how the opponents to this mischaracterized it as abolishing the police or defunding the police. It, it wouldn't even do that. But they were successful in that. And Jacob Fry's campaign actually even referred to his challengers, his mayoral challengers, as the defund and abolish coalition, even though neither one of them had explicitly said those sort of things. Hmm. Over the course of the last year and a half, the city council has tried to intervene when it comes to the police, right? They've they've cut some budget for the police, but they've been stymied in doing more structural change is my understanding. Is that right? So the Minneapolis City Council has budgetary control over the Minneapolis police, but the charter, which they were trying to change with this ballot question, gives the mayor complete control over the police. Essentially, Mayor Jacob Fry is the head of the police, which is what a lot of advocates for this ballot question argued, saying, hey, he hasn't actually done that much. He runs this. He can you know, reprimand cops who acted badly and were caught on video last year, but he hasn't done it. So I talked to council member uh, Jeremiah Ellison, who's the son of our state attorney general, Keith Ellison, who, a former congressperson. He said, question two, the restructuring wasn't something that all the city council members got elected to office to do. It was something that they realized the city needed as they fought with the police department to get information about what's going on, you know, fought with the mayor. So they came to the conclusion that the city needed this restructuring in order to actually make any sort of change. So the city council did try some things, but their power was limited by the the charter. Yeah. I mean, this ballot measure, it doesn't talk about defunding the police. Instead, it talks about removing the police department and replacing it with a Department of Public Safety controlled by the mayor and the city council. What would have changed if this ballot measure had passed? That was a question a lot of people had, <laughs> even like some people who supported it, because it's complicated, but the city attorney's office told council members that they can't start setting up the structure for this until it passes. So when voters were looking to council members who supported it for information about, hey, what are you going to do? How is this going to look? What's going to happen? They didn't really have any good answers because they hadn't been able to start the work and they wouldn't have been able to unless it actually passed. Why weren't they able to start the work? It's election rules, apparently. That's the advice of the city attorney who was appointed by the mayor, of course, that it would have been using their office for campaigning for a ballot question if they had started the work before it actually passed. And the mayor did op oppose the ballot question, to be clear. I mean, it sounds like the city council has been trying to insert itself in all kinds of ways into the question of how to run the police. And anything they try, they run into the mayor who says, uh-uh-uh. 
The interesting thing is this was not the only ballot question that we had. We had three on voters' ballots this time. And the first one actually was to reallocate executive power to the mayor. In Minneapolis, we had a more sort of hybrid, strong city council system in a weaker mayor system, except with police. And voters decided to restructure city government. They, they voted yes on this, essentially giving the mayor the control he has over the police over all the city departments. So it's going to be really interesting to watch exactly how they continue to pursue any of these reforms through the council system. You alluded to all the mailers and the signs that were up in the days leading up to the election, talking about question two and and how you should vote on it. I was struck by the fact that even people that listeners might think would be natural allies of this ballot question came out against it. Like the former head of the local NAACP, Nikima Levy-Armstrong, she came out strongly against voting for this ballot measure that would have established a a Department of Public Safety. Minneapolis residents deserve to have a comprehensive, cohesive, well-thought-out plan to review before they take the step of creating a new Department of Public Safety. How much should we make of divisions in in the activist community here? Yeah, the sort of people that we would talk to for stories about police accountability all pretty much came out against the ballot question too. They essentially said, what what use is it? Like renaming the Minneapolis police, the Department of Public Safety, it's the same animal. We have to like set up structures of actual accountability so that like how they police actually changes. And I think part of it is generational. These people have been doing the work for decades and they were skeptical not only of the the Minneapolis City Council's ability to make change to the police, but of just restructuring, having any impact on on how police actually do their jobs. Ballot question two came out of these these new folks. They were like for the most part a lot younger and maybe less experienced with organizing. And so when they started to pull together this ballot question, you know, at least what some activists tell me is they didn't reach out to these people who'd been doing the work for a really long time and they didn't bring them on board. Hmm. And to be fair, like Nakima too is also speaking for black Minneapolitans who predominantly will live in areas where the crime increase has taken a toll on people. You know, say North Minneapolis, which is more heavily black than the rest of the city, violent crime, shootings have gone way up up there. And there have been some cases of, you know, young kids getting caught in the crossfire. And I think she was also saying, how is this coalition reaching out to Black people in the city of Minneapolis? And actually addressing this concern that people, real concern that people have about, you know, shootings and violent crime. Yeah. I mean, NPR News, your news organization, did a poll and found 75% of likely Minneapolis Black voters opposed reducing the police force. That seems like a big hurdle for this ballot question to get over. Yeah, I think it's also a strategic thing. So that is reducing the numbers of police, that that question. But there was quite a bit of support for 
reforming the police or for you know making big structural changes to the Minneapolis Police Department across the board in the city. And so, I mean, I think it's an indication of how well the people who oppose the ballot question frame the the issue for voters. The coalition that supported the ballot question wasn't able to reframe it as anything else than defunding the police in the end. Yeah, it's interesting to me that you say some of these activists who had been in the space for a long time were saying, well, there just isn't a plan. Like, we don't know what's going to happen, which may be true. But at the same time, when you talk to city council members, they said, well, we couldn't make a plan because the city attorney was telling us if we did that, it would be against the rules. So they're kind of stuck. Like, they're right. There is no plan. But there couldn't be a plan. You have to have the yes vote first. Yeah, I think you have it exactly. It was a confusing situation for people. And when I talk to political scientists about ballot questions like this, they say confusion typically benefits the people who oppose a ballot question because voters, if they're unsure about something, if they can't quite grasp it, they'll vote no on it. More with John Collins after a break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The dust is still settling around question two. Millions of dollars were spent by groups supporting or opposing this ballot initiative. It's not yet clear which side had more resources. But John Collins says what is clear is how motivated voters were. Turnout was actually, our city clerk says, it was the highest for an off-year election in Minneapolis history. So people weren't staying home. People are not staying at home. And I mean... My street is still, you know, covered in, in signs. <laughs> um, and, and we got, so a typical like off-year election will get a quarter to a third of eligible voters. And this year it was 54% of eligible voters. And this in the year, there's no president, there's no Congress people on the ballot. So that was pretty good. And I think it's an indication of the high interest and, and perhaps of, you know, how active all the campaigns for and against and, and for the candidates were this year. How quickly did you know that question two was not going to pass? So we knew on the night, Minneapolis has a complicated ranked choice uh, voting system, but question two is yes or no. So we got the results that evening that it was not good for the people who supported question two. What was the reaction from the community? The community, I mean, it depends on who you are. The people who worked on this and supported it um, really were upset and disillusioned saying essentially that this just proves that people who run the city of Minneapolis, you know, more privileged, more white typically, that they 
you know, put their finger on the scale and beat this. But, you know, a lot of people expected it to happen. It was a proposal that was unprecedented. And the fact that it failed this time around was not that surprising to a lot of people, I think. Hmm. I think a lot of people are looking at the results of elections from all over the country and trying to figure out what they mean about how progressives might want to talk about policing and what kind of messages get through to voters. When you look at the totality of what happened last week in Minneapolis, do you see messages there? I think it's hard to have takeaways from what happened in Minneapolis, at least. We had quite a few, including our our local newspaper, the Star Tribune, focus on the fact that council members who supported ballot question two, a couple of them lost their seats. And at the same time as that happened, we had uh, three socialists elected to the Minneapolis City Council, and it's a council of 13. Um, And they're all Hmm. like young folks who are engaged in, you know, what, what they'll call the movement. And we had, even though voters opposed ballot question two on public safety, they voted for ballot question three, which allows rent control. So it's not like there was a, you know, far rightward swing in the city of Minneapolis. So not one big message, unless you maybe look at what happened on election night for Jacob Fry, your mayor, which is not only was he reelected, but question one, which was about giving the mayor more executive control did pass. So it was almost like a double win for him, it seems like to me. Yeah, he had a good night for sure. But Mayor Jacob Fry has said he he believes that reforming the police is a priority. Um, And he said after his re-election was announced that people have to work together People have to um, make real, he called it transformational change within the Minneapolis Police Department. So even if the ballot question lost, Jacob Fry perhaps has more room to push forward the reforms within the police department and to show the public that the police department is reformable. This is where the concrete steps and the specific steps necessary to truly shifting a culture and changing a department can start. One of the most significant. Do activists see the way Fry is now talking about policing in Minneapolis as a kind of victory in and of itself? Or has he become such a tough figure for them that they can't see it that way? I think they're skeptical. Um, When I talked to them, they said they're going to continue to fight and hold people like Jacob Fry accountable. But it doesn't seem like they have a lot of faith in his rhetoric, that his rhetoric will match actual reforms within the police or say, even like, you know, cops who were caught on tape abusing citizens last year, that they will be reprimanded. So I guess we're going to have to see how they approach this. And we're still in pandemic times. And we have this new structure where there will be fewer sort of issues coming up in a public venue of the Minneapolis City Council. Jacob Fry will just be dealing with them himself in whatever way that pans out. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how they plan to hold him accountable to some of the rhetoric that he's been using in the last couple of days. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned really briefly this video that came out. This is just a few weeks back. And it was video from the George Floyd protests 
I think that was shot by police officers who had body cams on. And they talk, they joke about hunting protesters. We're going to go find some more people. Instead of chasing people around, yeah. we're going to hunt. You guys are out hunting people now, and it's just a nice change of tempo. Yep, agreed. These people. Uh, get to move on. <laughs> move forward. It's gross. It's really bad. <laughs> I wonder what the mayor says he's going to do about that. And that's not the only video. I mean, there were a lot that came out last year of, you know, say cops driving by groups of people just standing and pepper spraying them for no reason. Um, these came out. These officers are identifiable. Jacob Fry, what he has said so far is he's not going to talk about exact cases of discipline because it could affect the process of discipline. You know, It's a uh, personnel matter. Yeah, so he hasn't talked about it because he says he's afraid of, you know, messing it up, essentially saying, hey, the mayor talked about me publicly. And so in arbitration, they'll overturn any sort of discipline. So, I mean, it is a year and a half later and lots of these cops have left their jobs and it's unclear exactly how much discipline is going to happen for Minneapolis police officers who you know, abused their power. Even when it's caught on tape. Does that hold water? He and his administration have talked about the arbitration system, essentially that overturns disciplines for police officers, which happens about half the time, according to our reporting. And I talked to arbitrators about this, and they said, yes, it is possible that police officers' uh, discipline is overturned, or that, say, an officer who is uh, fired, um, that the arbitrator decides, hey, that's kind of harsh. We'll just suspend them for a month or whatever. that, that is really possible. But part of the reason for that is because the Minneapolis Police Department has failed in the past, and I'm not seeing any indication that they've changed this, to discipline officers for low-level infractions. So they'll try to discipline someone who we had an incident where some officers hung racist Christmas decorations on a Christmas tree on, on the precinct in North Minneapolis. Shocking, outraging. They tried to discipline them. But like what happens a lot of the time is because this might be the first actual discipline on uh, these police officers' records, it will get overturned or lessened. And so like what Minneapolis police have traditionally failed to do is discipline from the bottom up. So like having the, the sergeant discipline the patrolman who's, who swears at uh, residents for no reason, you know, that is the sort of thing that they need to do in order for arbitration to stick. It's not just the mayor not talking about it or not addressing high profile things, in my experience, talking to arbitrators. So it's more complicated, I think, than the mayor is letting on. But it's also like gets to the fundamental problem with the Minneapolis police, which is that accountability needs to start from the bottom up. It can't just start when someone is shot. It needs to be happening every single day. And I'm curious to see how the mayor is going to address that particular issue of making sure that you know, cops hold each other accountable. You talked about confusion and how confusion can benefit people who who are voting no on a ballot measure. And that confusion, I felt like it was most, it stood out to me most in my reading about Minneapolis when I read about how George Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross, was thinking about question two. Because I remembered her so strongly from the Derek Chauvin trial. She gave really affecting testimony about who George Floyd was. 
And when she was asked, how will you vote on this ballot measure that was sparked by her boyfriend's killing, she didn't know. She said, I'm just, you know, not sure this is going to do. I'm not sure it would have prevented his death. It's still a debate in my mind. And when I read that, I thought, oh, that's <laughs> that's a problem for a ballot measure like this. Yeah. I mean, I, I let's be clear. It's been a year and a half since George Floyd was murdered, and a lot has happened since then. And some activists reminded me this week, uh, a year and a half is not a lot of time to prepare for substantial change to an institution that's existed for a century and a half. So I talked to folks who said, yeah, the ballot question failed, but there are all these other things that we can keep pushing on. There are all these other changes that we can make and we're gonna keep doing it. And I actually talked to another group, um, police accountability group, who is pushing forward a different ballot question and they want to get it on the ballot next year about policing, uh, essentially to create a elected body to oversee the police department, which would shift everything once again. Who would have expected that this would have been on the ballot, you know, five years ago or six years ago? Like when we talk to the people who call themselves police abolitionists, there are activists who do support abolishing the police. Um, years ago, um, it was a fringe idea, you know, but like now 44% of people vote for, you know, some sort of compromise version of it, you know, essentially saying restructure, re-envisioning the police. I think that is um, pretty stunning. So I see it as, you know, this is just one more step and it was a loss, certainly for the people who want more police accountability, but it also maybe means that it will come out in other different ways if people aren't turned off. It does show that quite a substantial part of the public did support this. So yeah, I think I, I look at it as it's it's part of a long journey that you know the city and the country is taking with policing and public safety. John Collins, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. John Collins is a senior reporter on Minnesota Public Radio's Race, Class, and Communities desk. And that's the show. But before I let you go, please let me tell you what you should be tapping over to listen to next. You should really be checking out our brand new season of Slow Burn. It's hosted by Slate writer Joel Anderson. You probably remember him from Slow Burn Season 3, which was about Tupac Shakur and the Notorious B.I.G. This time, Joel is focusing his gaze on the L.A. riots. Slow Burn's the kind of show that makes the familiar unfamiliar again. It makes you re-examine what you thought you knew about the biggest stories of our time. And this new season is no different. Joel's going to investigate the roots of six days of unrest in Los Angeles. I'm riveted by this show, so I want to make sure you are listening, too. Go check it out. Just, it's right there on your phone. Okay, now I'm going to get out of here. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go find me when I'm not here on Twitter, wasting time, taking pictures of stuff like the sign I really thought was funny at the New York City Marathon. Anyway, I'm at Mary's desk. Okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow.